A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello and welcome to a new series of A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences, from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Larry Achampong, who explores his communal and personal heritage through media including film, sculpture, installation, sound and performance. Larry uses diverse visual languages drawn from popular culture like gaming, comics and Hollywood movies, as well as video art and conceptualism to explore the legacies of colonisation and entrenched inequalities in contemporary society relating to class, gender and race. Always he brings the personal and the political into productive tension At the heart of his work is collaboration with actors, writers or other artists, including most prolifically with David Blandy, with whom he's created an extraordinary body of mixed media films that are the subject of a show at the Welcome Collection in London in 2023. Larry was born in London in 1984 to parents from Ghana and both his Ashanti heritage and his East End upbringing have been hugely important in his practice from the start. Among his early films is Sunday's Best, which explores through narration and song the impact of Christian imperialism on Ashanti people and culture. It's informed by Larry's contrasting experiences of Ghanaian community worship and the hallowed interiors of the Roman Catholic Church. Another film informed by Larry's personal experience as a child is The Expulsion from 2019, which focuses on a cleaner in a faceless office environment, one of an army of the people of the twilight, as Larry's narrator describes them, who work shifts at unsociable hours and are mostly unseen by those who occupy these environments during the day. The film is an atmospheric critique of societal inequities. But while documentary and personal testimony are crucial to Larry's methods, he also frequently enters speculative realms to address present and historic issues. He began the ongoing relic Traveller project in 2016 to address the rise of nationalism and the closing of borders in the global north, and the African Union's passport programme, which aimed for the exact opposite, open borders across a unified African continent. In the Relic Traveller series, Larry imagines a future in which the West has reached terminal decline, and astronaut figures equipped by the African Union, the travellers of the title, visit the desolate world left behind. There, they retrieve audio archives left by people who have been systematically oppressed through colonisation and capitalism so that these testimonies would be used by the African Union to govern more responsibly and equitably. The Relic Traveller project has produced numerous works. There are several films, each of which differs in its emphasis and form from original footage to animation. Larry's designed a series of flags called Pan-African Flags for the Relic Travellers Alliance, all involving the colours green, black, red and yellow and standing respectively for the land, its people, their struggle and a new world of prosperity. The flags have had the wide exposure of all Larry's works, appearing outside galleries and museums, on tube stations in London, for instance, and across the city of Liverpool for its 2021 biannual. The Relic Traveller project relates to a key concept in Larry's work, Sanko time. The term is based on the Shui word Sankofa, which means to go back and retrieve. The idea underpins everything Larry does in, as he puts it, using the past to prepare for the future. And this is perhaps most powerfully explored in Larry's most ambitious film to date, Way Finder, completed in 2022. Set during a pandemic and an unnamed moment in the future, the film follows a character called The Wanderer, played by Perseid Rodriguez, as she journeys across England from Northumberland in the north to Kent in the south. The six chapters of the film travel through time as well as place and reflect on social and cultural histories involving medieval law and romantic landscapes alongside contemporary documentary testimony. Still, the themes of the movement of people, belonging and exclusion, race and class are at the core of the film, bolstered by a soundtrack including a beautiful and austere score, lyrical balladry and a powerfully delivered voiceover. Indeed, while Larry's work takes many forms across multiple media, a consistent element is a sense of the narrative voice, whether it's his own or those of friends and collaborators. And when we met in his studio in East London, it's with this that I began our conversation. Why is narration so important to him?
narration is such a big deal to me. I always feel like, you know, that the, the sound of the narrator is uh, the omnipresence of sorts or the God voice, right? And um, I think for me, when I think about my relationship with video games, actually, uh, that aspect to uh, narration is quite a big deal. You know, you think about games like uh, Metal Gear Solid, you know, released in like the, the, the mid late 90s. And there are points within cutscenes that have, you know, these layers of uh, voiceover that relate with uh, history and then also speculative histories and futures. They set the scene, they build so much of what you're about to see. Now, of course, building a, a, a visual image is, is a really cool and nice thing. But I think once you add a voice to that, it can take it into all kinds of, you know, territory, really. So when I think about the Relic Traveller series, for example, that, that speculative nature of a future African Union, uh, the voice really is central to giving the person who's experiencing the work a stake in where that journey might go, you know. So I've said for years to people that, to me, audio kind of makes up at least, and I say at least probably, you know, 70 to 80% of a, of a film work because you know again you know the visuals just oh yeah I've seen that but the audio it can really maintain one's attention not just that but we're dealing with multiple senses right so you're dealing with what you hear and then you're dealing with what you physically feel you're dealing with you know reverberations so the voice um, is such a, a big deal in that and and I love the the fact that you clicked onto the a lot of the writing does it kind of starts from my own experience or my own relationship with some of these subject matters. But I work especially mostly with black women because to me that conversation of representation is very, very important. I was raised mostly by black women. Uh, my mum raised me as a single parent as well. And those voices are from my perspective and you know I believe this to be true, but you don't hear those voices so much within media. So being in a increasingly influential position why not, you know, challenge that with what I do, but also challenge that in a, in a creative sense as well. So we're talking about multiplicities, we're talking about multiplicities within time and space and uh, versions of in relation to the history that we've been, you know, taught for years or what have you. There's a dedication right at the end of Wayfinder, your yes. latest film, yeah. where it says, for my sisters, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm imagining you mean your sisters in the broadest sense mm. rather than the sibling relationship in both senses in both senses really you know when we think about the uh, the central character within uh, wayfinder the the wanderer uh, played incredibly by pesid rodriguez that character was based on my sister uh, laura who is about a year and a half younger than me and um you know as kids growing up in, in in east london coming from a lower working class background kids who experienced poverty i was the child in, in the family who was not so outgoing i'm not even if i'm honest with you so much of an outgoing person now but my sister she was so much more outgoing she would you know when, when people would talk about going to west end or going to these parties or shrubses as we would kind of like refer to them in slang she would be going to them. It wasn't me who was going to them, you know, and she, she was building like a kind of like garage collection and things like that. So I, again, where we're talking about this relationship of representation or the lack thereof where, you know, black women are concerned, that was really important for me to kind of show up in, in, in that sense. So I'm thinking about her. I'm thinking about, you know, my baby sister, uh, Thalia, Well, she's not really a baby so much anymore. She's in her 20s now, early 20s. But, you know, this relentlessness and courage that I wanted to kind of honour within a film that, you know, talks about the idea of journeying, which, you know, usually, again, within media, whether film or otherwise, tends to belong to white men. But, yeah, there is definitely that opening up of uh, the approach to sisters with regards to black women. You know, it's a film for them um, that I hope is able to be, you know, experienced again on those terms of, of multiplicities of stories. There is a central character and in a way you could take on that central character as those voices or you could take them on as different voices coming from different experiences. And there's this really fascinating dialogue, if you like, through the film with the Griot, who's mm. this character who's played with this extraordinary yes. power yeah. by um, Matteo Austin Dean. Indeed and sings these haunting, very old songs, yes. which relate directly to contemporary issues, extraordinarily mm -hmm. conjure the, the spectre mm. of racial mm -hmm. prejudice going right back to yes. the Middle Ages, I'm guessing. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, so indeed. so th- that seems to me to be important, that that multiplicity of voices can happen over time in the same way that the physical journeys happen over time. Precisely, you know, and, you know, taking the rouds or the child ballads as they're, they're referred to that uh, Matteo Ostendin uh, performed incredibly, you know, even within his own practice as, as, as an artist and a musician, he's very interested in that aspect of interpretation and reinterpretation of these songs that, you know, they may have a something of a law attached to them but at the same time as well they're there for a reconsidering of what a story could mean you know if we think about the uh the the tale of the other uh, brown girl one of the other uh, routes that you hear within the other uh, film and different versions of of that should we say there is a story of a a, a love triangle it's quite violent you know but when Matteo and I spoke about the the song and even the the interpretation thereof. We were really thinking not so much on a kind of like heteronormative kind of like relationship, but really more about the experience of being born or growing up in a place that you love or you build a love for, but it doesn't give you that love back, right? So we really were were trying to think very much about that aspect of of folk traditions, marrying that, you know, as you say, you know, with the the the, the character of the griot, which you know has a very strong uh, African and West African, you know, origin, but then also mixing that with that history of of the UK. And that griot character is this idea of a kind of an oral historian mm. to a certain degree. Yes. And it seems to me that this is one of the ways that you tie in this extraordinary relationship with time in the work, which mm-hmm. is absolutely to do with pop culture in very contemporary society and yes. deep history relating to West Africa or the UK, in fact. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how you establish those relationships over time mm-hmm. and in a way the kind of way that you synthesise them mm-hmm. and make them somehow interrelate because it's not an obvious and easy thing to do mm-hmm. within the context of composition if you like of a film yeah I guess in a way like I've kind of said earlier on I do look to myself or some of my own experience you know uh, you know straight away I, I, I think very much about growing up within you know Ghanaian churches in throughout London whether East London South London or North London even and the the various ways in which the different communities that I've been a part of growing up have um, not simply just survived, but also thrived through the various practices that they've brought over from the African continent, for example. There's also, I guess, you know, that, that aspect of, of research, which then, you know, takes place. So, you know, one of the things within uh, Wayfinder that in very, really early stages, I was thinking about in terms of the Roman presence within Northumbria going across Adrian's Wall and, and, and what have you, is, of course, the relationship with uh, African heritage of the, uh, the Roman conquest and presence mm-hmm. and what have you, which, again, you know, th- this kind of thing, it doesn't really tend to be spoken about. Um, but then, of course, there is that space additionally in a broader sense for, for the work of kind of adding a, an element of fiction to that relationship as well, you know, that allows the viewers to kind of be swept away, but to be brought into you know, again, that the idea of, wow, I could imagine kind of being in this kind of space, you know, so, you know, I'm not relying on massively on green screens or things like that, for example, you know, the UK is a, a an actual physical space, right, that is quite incredible if you travel along, whether you're driving or, you know, you fly from one place to an island or what have you. It's thinking about what actually is there. It's thinking about my connected and familial kind of heritage and relationship with that. There's connecting and relating with uh, people who I know. So that may be uh, family members, not necessarily blood related, but people who I know who also have, you know, different uh, connected histories with this land. Tell me about how you might have shifted in terms of your voice across the work, because I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if there was always a deep political critique, if you like, within the work, but it seems to me it's, it's become somewhat more activist. Would that be fair? Oh, wow. I mean, <laughs> I appreciate, you know, those words, but I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't personally really, you know, think of myself as, a, as, as an activist, if I'm, if I'm honest with you, or even when I'm writing. I have to mention, you know, big shout out to Ada Motro, a writer mm. who collaborated with me on writing the film, but has also worked on a couple of other films uh, writing wise as well. Like me, born in the UK, has Ghanaian heritage, uh, first generation. And um, it was important to invite her to bring in that set of nuance. I didn't want it to kind of sit within simply just, you know, my experiences 
And, you know, although, you know, being a black man coming from the background that I do and, and having experienced poverty and such, there's still a certain kind of like limit to some of the things that I've you know experienced in comparison to, you know, black women. So um, when I approached uh, Ada, I actually had a version of the script already written. And then her first response was, well, you've already written the script. What do you need me for? And I was like, look, no, I want you to pseudo chop whatever the hell you want. Take it wherever you, you, you kind of need to write what you think could or should might take place. And then let's have a conversation about that. You know, by that point in time, we'd we'd worked on, you know, a couple of pieces. So Beyond the Substrata and then before that, uh, Relic 2, part of the Relic Traveller series. So, you know, for me, there was already a, a, a strong kind of trust with her. And, you know, we're, I'd say we're similar kind of like socially and, and, and politically. So there was a there was a strong kind of like engagement of sorts. But the thing that I really love about her, which it reminds me about other people that I know and sometimes even myself is that there's always the little kind of like ping of like nuance in there you know so the approach of of, of talking about the quality of, of of paint the nuance of paint in uh, chapter three when we talk about you're in the national gallery Tunnel. right exactly you know there's that physicality of that and um sorry Ada if I if I get it wrong but I don't believe she paints in her spare time I studied painting quite heavily actually did that at a kind of foundation level equivalent at uh, uh, Barking College in the early 2000s. And so when she kind of spoke to me about that and I did additional research and we then kind of like layered this language into what became the, uh, the third chapter, it was just really this natural thing. You know, she has such a strong way with words and then with my added experience and then kind of approached to, you know, the poetic as such you know we were really able to do do something special you know I, I will say that of course for me the social and the political you, you cannot separate them from the work I know for some artists this is what they do but I honestly personally believe that wherever you come from you cannot separate something that is social or, or, or political with regards to you know the, the the work itself it's always going to be there you know what I mean whether it's in relation to the detail of the uh, the script or the uh, privilege or lack thereof that the individual set individuals have in carving what they're they're creating you've already referred to several collaborators actually mm -hmm. and it seems to me that that's an absolutely crucial thing to reflect on here because mm -hmm. because you are an incredibly generous collaborator. You are always upfront about who you're collaborating with. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about David Blandy in particular mm. because you have a show with him at the moment at the Welcome Collection in London, yes. but also because that's an ongoing relationship and it seems to me deeply connects with your own practice mm. as a separate artist. Yeah. And also has this really interesting element where you're reflecting on each other's identities within mm -hmm. the work you cannot yes. ignore your own identities but there's a sense in which there's a dialogue and the, yeah. it's a difficult thing to establish that isn't it oh it really is it really is and um david and i we've been working together for nearly 10 years now so you know genetic automata the show currently on at welcome it really marks a strong kind of like first for us a first major solo show uh, combination as a result of you know so many projects and films and, and, and what have you that we've we've developed and um, yeah collaboration is I love to work with people I love to try to create opportunities and bring people in so when I think about you know just focusing one more moment on on, on Wayfinder a, a lot of people within the, uh, the, the the project they hadn't had a so-called kind of like professional background of you know making or working within the film scene or in particular manners but you know that that didn't really matter to me and I say that because I don't really come from that background apart from you know having studied uh, art at you know undergraduate level and then you know postgraduate at, at MA I, I never learned filmmaking through that you know I learned filmmaking through actually going to the cinema and watching pop culture films, things like that. So the reason why I've mentioned that, of course, is this is where, you know, David and I really connect. It's through the popular culture. It's through the Hollywood films, the Kung Fu films. It's through uh, video games and comics and things like that. And, you know, I, I met David at a really particular, uh, you know, poignant point in time for me where these aspects of culture, they, they, they really were quite frowned upon. But here was someone whom was exploring this, not only in a genuine manner, but also was uh, and is a fan of, of such material. So that, I think, created a segue for us to kind of really meet. And I always say this, that, you know, we're friends first and then, you know, collaborators as, as practitioners afterward, really. That basis of being able to be 
friends, I think, allows for a type of, shall we say, uh, intimacy. That was really important, I would say, particularly with the new commission at Welcome God Mode, because, I mean, that conversation was really difficult. It really, really was. I've said this a few times before, and I'll say it again. With that work, we could have, you know, that, and, and, and it's no kind of shade on Stevie Wonder or Paul McCartney, but we, we could have done an ebony and ivory type thing, and that would have just been embarrassing. That was something that was always, you know, in the back of my mind. And it's not what I kind of said to David straight away when we went away and wrote our different parts of the script and then, you know, brought that together. But it certainly was uh, for me on my mind. And maybe it might have been on his mind or maybe it it may not have as a result of his privilege. But um, I think when you're sharing a space with somebody, you are thinking about their thoughts, but you're also thinking about how you're able to not simply just empty yourself, but also contribute to a table that you're sitting at you know you're you're sharing that food so you know how do you also look look out for that person as well as hopefully that they're, they're looking out for for you and your point of view and your experiences let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests who was the first artist whose work you loved I think I was around 16 or so at the time. I'd won an art prize at my secondary school just before uh, leaving. I got, I think it was like uh, it was like a 20th century art book. And um, the piece is called Self-Portrait Exaggerating My Negroid Features by Adrian Piper, first generation American conceptual artist. Now, Adrian Piper's work is tremendously deep. I mean, the way that she she deals with the idea of the other conceptual before then even breaking down or opening different topical, you know, issues in itself. But here I am as a 16 year old black boy from East London via uh, Essex. I'd never been taken to a gallery before. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up going to museums. The V&A Museum of Childhood happened to be, you know, on my doorstep. But, you know, I, me and the other kids, we never necessarily always felt welcome there. Whenever we went in there, we felt like we had eyes on us. So looking at these art books and seeing things that I thought I'd never ever get to see IRL, you know, was its own thing. But seeing that image and really, really honestly un- being able to understand what, Adrian Piper was able to communicate without reading any kind of like blurb about her work and, and, and what have you. It spoke a type of truth to me that really uh, brought to light my experiences of things like being stopped in search or later from that point in time being falsely arrested, arrested because of, you know, my race. Um, and again, when I just think about that work, I feel that's what I hope to be able to do as a, as a practitioner, really create something that allows a viewer to just really be stopped in their tracks for a moment you know ego is an easy thing and you just let that stuff fly and you do this and you do that but like really kind of like honing a message or a set of messages and being able to make those kinds of you know right decisions to really channel that message channel that energy I felt is what she was able to do with that work one of the really striking things is that it's about what opens a door for you yeah. into a world where it becomes a possibility to be an artist, it's, it seems to me. Most that, that what you're describing is that ability. We're not, as you say, it stopped you in our tracks, but it also mm-hmm. opened a door, right? Yeah. So is it, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it did. It did. It, 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 you know, it let me know that as a black kid from lower working class area, maybe I could do this. Like maybe these drawings that I'm doing at, the, at that point in time, maybe I could actually, you know, go somewhere. Maybe this could be possible. And this person is also at the same time communicating to me what it feels like to be othered, you know. Which historical artist do you turn to the most? Um, well, they're still alive, so again, <laughs> I hope I'm not throwing any shade. But um, uh, Spike Lee, you know, again, when talking about that relationship with uh, film, cinema, being a moviegoer, I experienced Spike Lee's work both through watching television and then later on going to the cinema, for example, there's probably too many films to to mention, but, you know, films from the likes of, uh, you know, Crooklyn through to um, Do the Right Thing. Mm. Some of the questions you asked earlier on, Ben, about the narrative, the build-up of the narrative, there's something quite special in the way that Spike Lee is able to kind of 
you know, carve that and create these moments within various scenes of, of his films. He does that with some of the ones I've mentioned. He does that with the likes of Jungle Fever. Sometimes it, it's more successful than in other cases, but it's unashamedly its own kind of energy or aura. And the, the time that you kind of give to it is the promise that it will give you back. So, you know, probably two of my favourite films of his, you know, Crooklyn and then Bamboozled. Bamboozled, I think, is a film that was, it was way ahead of its time. I feel in a way it's only in recent years had something of a resurgence. But um, because of its ability to talk about something so painful in terms of that history of, you know, American minstrel culture, but its relationship with the contemporary was just, it, it was so far out for what it was doing. But again, for me, at the point in time that I witnessed that film, and I remember even like, you know, it's the earlier days of the, uh, the internet and seeing reviews that were just lambasting it and so on. I'm just like, how the hell can you not understand what the, what's going on here with this work, you know? To me, is just a really a beautiful thing. And also the, the, the relationship with things like, you know, the soundtracks, you know, you'll have like full-on kind of like, orchestral works that are created for some of the films that also then meld in with that you know uh, aspects of, of of black music and popular culture as well so you know just the way that he's a true artist to to his craft but you know for me since since I was really really young you know even up to now I've been such a fan of of, of what he does and yeah I mean I hope in in time he is now but I hope he continues to be, you know, considered of, as, as one of, you know, the great artists and filmmakers that, that lived. Which contemporary artist do you most admire? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a list. <laughs> uh, Sonia Boyce, uh, Eddie Chambers, Rashida Reen, Shatapa Biswas, Theaster Gates. Hmm. You know, these artists, many more, you know, the likes of Yinka Shonibara, Faisal Abdullah, Lubaina Himid. They've put themselves on the line in ways that I think a lot of artists don't have to as a result of the privileges that they have. And I'm really appreciative, actually, of having been around when the work of some of these people was not as popular as it is now. To witness what, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's a long time coming. It should have happened, you know, ages ago. It's, it's beautiful to see that now. It's not just the work. The work goes beyond the, the artwork, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know? and, and, and it's the dedication to those conversations as to why, you know, they're really such important, you know, artists to me. But then, of course, you know, I've mentioned the likes of uh, Theasta Gates, who, you know, is a black American artist. I had the, the opportunity of meeting uh, Theasta in, in 2016. I... Um, was invited to uh, work on essentially my first solo show at a place called Logan Center Exhibitions in Chicago. Mm. Um, Yasami Omalo, who, who's currently at the uh, the Serpentine, invited me. Um, I've known Yasami for a good good amount of years. It was great to spend time across the other uh, various projects and initiatives that uh, Theasta has worked on, has had a hand in, and, and continues to. You know, the Rebuild Foundation, Stony Arts Bank, the many different uh, you know archives, including that of Frankie Knuckles's vinyl collection. You know, real, real tangible, physical things, whilst also you know creating opportunities for local Black folk who've been disenfranchised and continue to be right, um, and, and they're felt by the other local authorities. To see an artist being able to do that again, it's going beyond the artwork, right? And to me, when an artist can do that, I mean, what more can you ask of them? Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's one thing for a work to perhaps kind of, you know, exist within a, a space of popular culture. But when you're able to actually take what you do even further into the community, not just talking about it, it's not an essay, it's not a little kind of soapbox kind of moment. I mean, again, what, what more can you ask for, really? You talked about Rashid Oren there, and, mm. and he's a perfect example of what you mean about going beyond the work. He's mm -hmm. a, a really great artist yeah. but also organized this extraordinary show called the other story the other story yeah Haywood which mm -hmm. yeah which is scholarship is only now caught up with that yeah. show if you yeah. know what i mean and yeah. i think it's you know that's a sort of that's telling that these people are often organizers and had to be frankly oh, organizers as well as as well as artists they were organizers upsetters you know points in time they're being told to shut their mouth and they won't shut their mouth so you know fortunately we have that that archival data and things of letters that he wrote to you know various you know with his arts councils or the Hayward themselves he didn't have to do that 
you didn't have to do that. And artists, a lot of the time, don't. They don't bother doing that, you know. And, and, and he put himself on the line. And that, again, you can only commend that, really. Because if, if he hadn't put himself on the line, then I'm not sure how far I end up going as a, as a practitioner. I read and looked at journals like, uh, you know, Third Text, which, of course, he had a hand in, 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 in building, Art Monthly, even reading about his Black Phoenix journal, which only existed two issues. I read that material almost in the same way that I read like X-Men comics. These people are heroes to me, you know, and you're seeing people like him and Eddie Chambers, like knock it back and forth about what black art is and what it means, the political black and, you know, all of this kind of thing. It, to me, that, that, that was just literally lighting my, my mind up. I'm sitting here within the archives in, in Innova when it's based at, you know, Rivington Place and just thinking, wow. Like these people, they exist and they're doing this crazy stuff. And like, <laughs> I, I hope I get to, you know, even meet them, let alone even, you know, shake their hand one day. You know? Is there a, is there a reference? I know that you talk about Sanko time. It's a kind mm. of crucial element of your mm-hmm. practice. And of course, there was a Sanko for Film Collective who was mm. a part of that black mm-hmm. ass movement in mm-hmm. the 1980s and so mm-hmm. on. Is there a bit of a reference to them there too? I mean, it's obviously a word which relates to a particular yeah. you know, tradition, but still. Yeah, yeah. If I'm honest with you, not kind of like immediately. You know, not immediately. Of course, for me, there, there has to be a reverence and respect to, you know, what they did, what they did before me and, 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 and other practitioners. But really, you know, that comes from comes from my mum, if I'm honest with you. You know, she's the one who, you know, made sure it was it was an imperative that, that we understood a tree, a language that is part of our heritage, you know, so that one day in her mind, if we went to Ghana or, you know, we, we were with other relatives, then we'd be able to talk with that tongue, not just English. My mum, again, you know, she has such a incredible energy about her. She's someone who's very communal. She's very much about community, looking after people, but she's also about people having their independence. And the way to have independence, I believe, you know, I hope I'm paraphrasing well for you, mum, is that you know where you're coming from. And if you know where you're coming from, you know, you, you know, your language or, you know, that link to your heritage, you're able to stand upon that. So that's where really, you know, I, I, I began to take apart and, and, and reapply uh, Sankofa or Sanko time as, you know, a practice to my work. Because I'd say this, especially with the, uh, the Relic Traveller project of, of works, which is established around 2017, not too long after the first two films, Relic Zero and Relic One, you know, people would talk about the work being uh, Afrofuturism. And, you know, for me, I, I wasn't able to personally subscribe to that. It's, you know, that's a term that is created within a white gaze by a white American man, mm. Mark Derry. It's not me trying to kind of disrespect, you know, other artists whom for them, that's, you know, what works. But for me, it was important to build my own language or build language from which myself or others from our lineage are able to actually stand upon. It's no longer then seen within a particular frame. No, this is what it is. Yeah, and it cannot be mistaken. A Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 200 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are ICA Miami and English Heritage's Kenwood House in London. On Bloomberg Connects are two UK galleries that recently hosted Laria Champong's travelling exhibition, Wayfinder, MK Gallery in Milton Keynes and Turner Contemporary in Margate. If you download the app, you'll find that the MK Gallery has in-depth features on current and recent exhibitions, including Larry's show, with images and audio exploring different works across his career. In the Guide to Turner Contemporary, you can hear Larry's discussion about that version of the show with the curator and writer Aisha Meres, along with features on Turner Contemporary's latest exhibitions and projects. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We're in your studio now, so I can see there are some things pinned to your studio wall. Mm-hmm. What do you pin to your studio wall and how do you use them? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so um, it's a weird kind of cacophony of tools and then you've got like, <laughs> you know, newspaper cutouts, a bit of like a video game postcard. I've got a... Um, one of the really special things actually is 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 a big card from uh, my dojo 
kind of like congratulations card for when I reached uh, first dan grade black belt in Goju Ryu Karate. So um, that's really quite important to me. It means quite a lot. I've got some partially empty frames that need to be filled up with, you know, family photos. I keep, <laughs> I'm like, note to myself, you know, I'll fill them up with photos of the kids. So I'm not getting around to it. And then there's some of my daughter's masterpieces. We've got an A4 piece, a, a drawing of some kind of squid-like creature. I mean, she she's really on another planet, honestly. If you look behind you, Ben, as well, you've got some other paintings. She's got a portrait here of me and then also, you know, imagery of like a horizon on a kind of like beach setting. She's just, she's constantly creative. And then just like myself, she practices karate as well as my son. Uh, yeah, we've got this image of a white Christ and the Madonna. It's um, I almost kind of don't think too much about how it's supposed to convey itself and I kind of lo- love the fact that you know you're, pro- you're the first person to kind of ask me what's what's going on here I, I couldn't tell you mate like it's just <laughs> it's stuff you know but but you know they, they all have their little kind of like pieces in terms of you know importance to me. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? Yeah I think even if you include like some of the, the, the places that I might have been to recently it's unparalleled in comparison to Innova Institute of International Visual Arts the size of the, the institution is, is, is smaller now, the space that they occupy it, with University of the Arts London in Pimlico. But um, that's the place that I've, that I've visited easily the most because it was and is still a, a mecca of sorts to me. Not too long ago, there was a point in time where the information that you could get from that place was entirely unparalleled of course the digital age has kind of like changed that in terms of how we can access information but you know we're talking about in in some ways though still the elements of of archival information that you just can't get anywhere else it's the books like, that you can find the there books, yeah yeah you know and then to think about the point in time where they were really hot on on publishing as well again you know they were creating you know essays and things that that you you just weren't going to find anywhere else really so you know the interesting thing of course about this is although at a point in time they had a small gallery space that then moved into a bigger gallery space with the the building that they shared with Autograph ABP which Autograph mm. now uh, operate from entirely that although the smaller space before that you know, they had shows and things like that. It wasn't necessarily about the shows. It was about everything that kind of was built around that or added to the fruition of the work. That really helped for me personally to build my own kind of criticality. Again, without that, I don't think I'm talking with this kind of depth about about what I do, just being honest. But, the, you know, the library at University of Westminster that I went to, like, it was trash. It wasn't as, it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't good enough. It wasn't talking about a range of practices that allowed me to know that I had a stake, right, in all of this. And, you know, Innova did that for me. And, you know, they continue to do that. They're, they're a different model and shape these days. They're an organisation that I'll always champion. The work that they do with, you know, younger practitioners working on zines and various types of, you know, events and things like that. I think this is... Uh, this is what matters. Um, it's not about the size of the uh, the institution. Of course, I've shown it in big institutions. I'm shown in, <laughs> shown in some right now. But um, there's something about, you know, the, the, the heart that you put into that. To talk about a totally different institution, mm-hmm. in Wayfinder, there was this extraordinary moment in the National Gallery we referred yeah. to earlier on. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about that is it, it prompted me to look further mm-hmm. once I'd seen the film. Mm. And I looked at Francois Hubert Drouet's Comte de Vaudreuil, which is one of the works that you focus Mm -hmm. on. So it's an 18th century portrait in which he is standing in front of a a map of Saint-Domingue, which eventually becomes Haiti and so on. But one of the intriguing things is that when I looked at the information about that work, Mm -hmm. the the overview of that work online, there's not one word about slavery. Mm, And it seems to me that 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 critical voice that that the narrator in that section of the Mm -hmm. film adopts is so powerful. Yeah. And it's an engagement with an institution which is on the one hand revealing its splendour, if you like, mm. but w- with that critical voice. And it seems to me that's crucially important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it was such, a, such an incredible opportunity to be able to be there. You know, big shout out to Priyash Mystery, who works at mm. the National Gallery, good friend of mine and, and, and collaborator. Christine, who also works on the other displays there, big shout out to her. Christine Riding, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. So... Hopefully I can kind of break this down without taking too much time. But but a point in time that I was taken to spaces like, you know, the National Gallery or Tate, for me, there was 
this almost kind of cathedral-like reverence to me. Like I go in and I'm just like this small person. I'm like, whoa, like, it, it, you know, it's, it's got a gargantuan kind of like nature about it, right, that just it swallows you up. And um, the National Gallery is incredible in the way that, you know, when you think about the lighting in relation to artworks, that's really one of my favourite things, actually, you know, you just really subdue deep tones and things like that, you know, in, whereas in contemporary spaces, the light is it's just it's, everything's bleached and i yeah. can't i actually hate that i i really enjoy you know the the the, the, the subdue colors but you know the, this this opportunity and that's what it was an opportunity to it wasn't simply just about you know filming and allowing that space for Percy to play the character but it was also that opportunity of being able to occupy that space mind you we're talking about a point in time in yeah, the lockdowns actually the film was made during the lockdowns right and so there were so many, you know, restrictions and things like that in place. But that ability to be able to walk through that space and time and again with no one being there was just absolutely, I mean, it's kind of like you don't get that chance. <laughs> you don't usually get that kind of chance, right? So um, being able to be in that space in that way, that shifted the relationship for many of us. It certainly shifted the uh, the relationship for me with the works. You know, again, I'm just going to be honest with you, Ben. You know, when I come to, you know, gallery spaces and things and the contested kind of like nature of it, of, you know, don't touch this or don't, you know, you're walking too fast here or you, you look shady, whatever the hell that means even, right? To then having none of that, but simply just being able to respond with not simply just a criticality, but just a, brash kind of honesty to the work it was special and so when I went over the script and the kind of pacing of the scene with with Perseid I said to her look like this is your space this is your gallery it may not have felt that way before but you show how you would respond or think about some of these things sure there's a few notes and things that I gave her here and there but like is really kind of giving her that opportunity to just look up and down at something, look with her nose up and down on, on some of these histories, which, as you point out, you know, a focus just on a particular experience and not the rest of that story, right? You know, I'd say that, that there's a weight with that as well at the same time. You're dealing with something that, you know, there are a lot of folk who, you know, hold um, a certain reverence with a certain version of a story toward that. But I felt that as long as I was able to, in the writing space, and again, thanking you know Ada Mocho, if we were able to connect on a personal level, and then as a result of that, open up on a critical level, you can't you can't knock that back. You you know you can have an opinion, that's fine, but like how are you going to knock that that lived experience? You can't. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? We'll probably talk a little bit more about this, I'm sure, but video games. The phenomenon of that, not just the playing of video games, I was introduced to them in like the late 80s, early 90s, at the point in time that I was growing up, the 8-bit era of video games, Sega Master System, Nintendo Entertainment System, you know, had come out. The reason why it's a cultural experience that really has shaped the way that I think is because of the way that the culture has also emerged and grown over the years. So when I was younger... You know, there weren't video games concerts, but I remember listening to the tunes of certain tracks on Shinobi or Streets of Rage and just being like, oh, this is a vibe. Like, and, you know, sometimes, it, you know, I, I wouldn't even fight. I would just put the character in a place where they can't be hurt, you know, destroy a few <laughs> villains and just just leave it there and just just keep on listening to the to the beats. Do you know what I mean? You've done mixtapes, haven't I've you? I've done mixtapes and, uh, you know, it's an ongoing thing, the video game mixtape, you know, and, and um, I wish I had even more time for it. I've only crafted 10 of them to, to, to date. But um, but this, again, this is part of the reason why, you know, the, the music that so many creators have, have, have made over the, the years have such incredible, you know, beauty and also chaos and feeling to give that feeling of whether you're, you know, racing at breakneck speeds and may get thrown off into oblivion or you know you're 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 in a, in a final battle as link facing off against you know the the great evil that is ganondorf from the legend of zelda these incredible notes that build up to such crescendos 
contribute to your surrounding. Again, it's coming back to that point that I made about sound, you know. But again, to come back to that point about, you know, the culture of, of, of gaming and especially to ride for a moment with the fact that, you know, when I was a kid, the kinds of conversations around video games were, oh, this phenomena looks like it's going to take over our kids, turn them into killers. We have games like Mortal Kombat where people's heads are getting chopped off. Yeah, all right, granted, you know, there, there are fatalities in the game, but that's literally not even a speck of, of so many of the games that exist out there that all work in such incredibly kind of like creative ways. You know, that's then before we even think about cosplay, the way that people take on some of their favourite characters and dress up as them and, and go to events such as Comic-Con and what have you, which, yeah, you know, is a bit more corporatized now. But again, it, that's besides the point of the fact of what it does for like really little kids with their, you know, moms and dads or relatives and things like that, that they're able to share a space where they communicate with the law of um, the culture of a game that they then take into their own kind of territory. I've even seen games like, I don't know, like Splatoon, for example, and the way that with each of the, uh, the sequels, the developers have really responded to the way that fans of the game, and I'm not just talking about hardcore players, but people who have kind of evolved their own kind of versions of approach to language through that. So, you know, video gaming, you know, is something I can go, obviously go on and, and on about for, but that as a modern kind of space for communication really showed me the possibilities of of how I could as a as a creator make and do the things that I do that you have maybe experienced today. And the, the interesting thing to me about the effect on your work is that it's obviously there in Phoenix Rising, which is a very early film of mm, yours, which mm-hmm. actually has direct quotes from, mm. from video games and so on. But you've yeah. also talked about the way that it's also influential over the sublime landscapes yeah. that feature in Wayfinder. Exactly. So even though you're, those are filmed landscapes, video games inform those, right? So there's a complete, it's almost like a 360 like influence. If you like. Honestly, I'm so like, I'm quite busy and prolific, so I'm glad you picked that out because even for me, it's easy to forget. But, you know, that that points directly to the show of JMW Turner's works that I curated alongside the presentation of the, the Wayfinder show. So, you know, with that conversation, beyond kind of thinking about Turner's work within the, the third chapter of the film was really an opportunity for me to think about that that sublime that Turner was so easily able to kind of like depict in his paintings and his sketches and put that alongside the legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Why not? <laughs> or why, is, why has nobody done this yet? To me, it's like, why, this is a no-brainer. Why, you know, we're just having the same old usual old kind of conversations time and time again. But, you know, for me, when I had that opportunity through the team at Turner, big shout out to them. To me, it was a chance to kind of, you know, work within this sandbox of stuff that was part of the uh, the bread and butter of, of my studies when I, you know, lived with my, my dad in, in, in Daglam, in Essex. You know, we would do nothing but portraits and landscapes. That's all we did. And and, and using the mud and the dirt and, and, and silt or sand or what have you in, in the various landscapes that we went to, to incorporate into the, the, these paintings. And then when I wasn't there, I was playing the, the, the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. You're running across these, you know, three-dimensional fields. The game was kind of, you know, a revolution in the exploration of the third dimension. You hadn't seen something so sublime in this way. Even the introduction of the game, the way that it opens up across a vista, you could totally place that alongside a range of different vistas that, you know, Turner kind of put forward. So to be able to communicate that, and hopefully for, you know, kids who are really into games, they're able to then school their parents or elders. <laughs> you know, this was that that moment again to kind of go in there to upset things. But, you know, again, to restructure how we think about and experience art. Which writers or poets do you return to? Claudia Rankin. I don't have all of her books, but the way that she's able to talk about a moment of experience, like just draw the scene, but with so few words. When a practitioner can do that, that's the most amazing thing. Is that an aspiration of yours, to aim for that economy? You talked about earlier on about how in your collaboration you're the poetic voice, if you like. Mm. Do you aim for a kind of poetic simplicity or is, it, is, is that rather too simple a way of putting it? No, I think no, I think you're onto something there. Again, as a kid who who read and as an older kid reads comic books, you know, 
is able to also just paint a picture and just say it, say that the way it is. In that aspect of simplicity, there is such a tremendous intelligence with what she does. It's not, you know, I say this as a writer, it's not easy to write something in in few words for you to get it, but then also to be sat either directly in the point of view of the experience of the person or on the side of the street or what have you. And she just manages to do that, you know? I was really struck by the fact that you named Tana Hesse Coates, mm-hmm. and particularly the book Between the World and Me, mm-hmm. as part of your extraordinary film Reliquary 2. Mm. Tell us about that influence and, and what you did with that film. Yeah, yeah. Tana Hesse Coates' writing, again, such a powerful ferocity in, in the delivery of, of, of how he goes about what he does. You know, with the book Between the World and Me, Tana Hesse is, is writing to his son about the generations of experience somewhat a little bit before him and then his point of growing up in you know like the 70s 80s 90s and things like that and in such an incredible approach is able to layer his hopes his dreams his fears around an America that is changing but in other senses is also not changing and he's asking the question of you know if you know his son will experience the traumas that he has and that he's inherited and yeah of course you know there's a total kind of like direct inspiration for my film Reliquary 2 which is uh, the latest film within the Relic Traveller series it's the fifth film it was made in uh, 2020 it was shot during the lockdown well not shot during the lockdown it was made during the lockdown the imagery was actually shot a few years before that at the um, the the burnt out West Pier in in, in Brighton Mm. so Initially, I, I'd shot some test imagery with my drone. I'd, I'd flown it across the water, so there was the danger that it could just drop, but that was it. But I'd shot enough with it where my mind, you know, like I'd got my kind of return on it. I think very much like that, almost like a media production kind of centre. We can take the risk with this, and if we get some good stuff, you know, we can work with it. There was such beautiful, lush, uh, lilac kind of, you know, orangey views of, of a kind of sunset during the winter period. I'd gone right at the at, at the best time for it. But then I had these rushes and I, I didn't have anything from. I didn't know what to do with them. And, you know, it's the same with a lot of material that I shoot. I don't try to cram everything in. If it doesn't work, that's fine. We place it in a hard drive. Maybe I'll come back to it in years to come. So, of course, during that period of the lockdown 2020, we're all told we have to stay indoors. For me... Um, as a parent to, to two kids who I co-parent, I was separated from them for around four months. It was one of the most difficult periods of my life that I've experienced. I hope I don't have to experience that again. As somebody who is very active as a parent with engaging with my kids, you know, day to day, whether that's school activities, activities outside of the school, to, to have that cut off, to not be able to physically be around them in, in, in the day to day like that, it was really honestly devastating for me. On top of that, I believe I caught COVID. I just wasn't able to test for that because test mm, kits didn't yeah. exist at the time. So, you know, it's not, not far off from the time that I'd moved out to uh, Perfleet in Essex, so returning to Essex, and I'm out there on my own. And um, being honest, Ben, like, I, I wasn't sure if I'd make it. I, you know, who, who was, like, you know, the fear was sent through us. And then you also have a government that's just working stupidly slow on things, one of the last nation's governments to really respond with an actual plan to COVID. And here I was thinking actually about this writing that I wanted, I wanted to write a letter for the kids. And it was because of Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing, I wanted to write something for them. So it wasn't even supposed to be, you know, an artwork, a film, a video. It was just going to be writing that I kind of like gave to them. They can, you know, read this or reread this later on. Um, There was a solo show that I'd not too long ago from the point of, of, of lockdown that I'd opened the uh, John Hansard Gallery. I, I, I call it the uh, the one or two week show because that's what it lasted for. Yeah, like so many shows. <laughs> like that loads time. of shows, you know, horrible, so yeah. much hard work. The team behind yeah. the scenes worked really hard on that and it, did, it didn't get to live. It just kind of exists as an archival kind of thing through imagery, right? To kind of try to, not necessarily to entirely soften the blow, the blow was what it was, but the organisation, the team gave me the opportunity to create a work uh, for additional, you know, commissioning fee. But of course, the caveat is that you can't go outside, can't go outside and film. So I started thinking about the rushes that I had and 
the fact that I, I need to write this piece of writing because I don't know how the hell long I'm, what, what's going to happen. Like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm, all, all these kinds of uh, thoughts are, are, are going so through existential thoughts, effectively. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can write this piece of writing now with the fear of, you know, like God in me, really. I need to get this thing done. I haven't got any other time to do any, you know, anything but that. And because I just got my... Uh, driving license i was able to also you know do that the grocery runs and stuff you know i deliver at the doorstep of you know whether it's uh, uh the kids and their mum Haley joy rose or or, or my mum and i was just working in the background working in the background and from time to time you know i talked to Haley about you know what i was doing and um there's, there's a point in time where she sent a voice note where she was kind of singing like a call and response, a song. I don't remember the name of it, but she was singing it with, with our daughter, Zale, whilst she was bathing her. And it was just so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It was so, it just, it put me at peace. And I just, I kept playing it again and again and again and again. But, you know, here's this raw piece of, of, of audio. Just, you know, there's, there's no complexity around the audio file or whatnot. But you can hear the beautiful nuance in it. And I said, okay, this, this has to go in there. It has to go in there. And then, you know, there's all, all these other weird things. Again, I'm, I'm just being honest here, Ben, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking in a way that, like, you know, I may not be around after this. So... This work is called Reliquary 2. Many people don't know. The reason why this work is called Reliquary 2 is because Reliquary 1 is supposed to be written by Haley. So that belongs to her. So I, you know, I come in afterwards. I come in second. Um, it's, it's, it's a usual thing we kind of talk back and forth on. But um, it's a work that um, even thinking back to it now, it's really weird to think that it was made, you know, over three years ago. And at, at, at such a point in time, that again, I hope many people, like no one gets to experience again because what it did to us, we're still dealing with the repercussions now. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there are important things that that happened on a, on a, on a kind of like social and political level with regards to, you know, Black Lives Matter and whatnot, Blackout Tuesday. But then at the same time, I feel like we are, and I, I'll be honest, even myself, I'm, I'm still dealing with those repercussions and aspects of, of, of healing in relation to that. But it was such a um, such an urgent work that needed to be made. It's good that you mentioned music because the next question is about music. And so what musical or other audio do you listen to while you're working? Oh, well, it depends on the day of the week or the or the minute or you know it can be all kinds of stuff you know or the nature of the work that you're doing yeah i mean video game soundtracks of course naturally that's what i'll be listening to it will then jump down to i don't know i might even listen to some prince or michael jackson at another point uh, i'll be listening to some high life uh alleged pong um african brothers international band and then also, which I do with my family, I take them to orchestral performance kind of shows, but the orchestral performances are renditions of uh, video game scores or music. <laughs> you know, so we're taking like some of the chip tune of, you know, Super Mario Brothers of the 80s. That's then placed within a full on orchestra, the likes of the, uh, the Royal Philharmonic. And they, they go to work on that. And that's a beautiful thing that we kind of share. I've noticed actually my kids, the way that they pick up with sound, music and rhythms and things like that, the way that they hum and sing things, very similar to the way that I would as a kid or I, I still do now. It's just it's, a, it's its own kind of weird ism, you know. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's that, there's movie kind of, you know, soundtrack music or I'm listening to like, you know, hip hop more so the old stuff than the new stuff or, you know, beat makers like Jay Dilla, Mad Lib, you know, MF Doom, just stuff that just, that keeps me going, you know, that it can be oral and lyrical and it can be lyrical without necessarily being oral. And of course you make your own music. I do. You're the composer for your own soundtracks. I am. That seems to come from a place of electronica. Is it, would that be fair? I mean, I suppose that's also partly video game soundtracks again, right? It sure is. It sure is. You know, again, you know, where we are in my studio in Bow in East London, I grew up down the road in Bethnal Green in E2, you know, where grime mm -hmm. built up from, you know, the likes of, you know, if you think about you know, Dizzy Rascal or Wiley and what have you. I was surrounded by people who were making things. They were using PlayStation 1 or PlayStation 2 and, and or, or crack copies of uh, 
FL Studio, Fruity Loops, things like that, Cubase, to, you know, go to what they refer to as Studio. But Studio is really just a cheap kind of like laptop that they, <laughs> they'd hooked up a microphone to on the side of a bed. And these things for me are the foundations of, of how I approach what I do. Again, going back to the point of, you know, growing up in various like Ghanaian community churches, familial members whom brought over from Ghana with them, their methods and approaches to, you know, playing the, the talking drums, the djembe, the bass guitar, rhythm guitar, again, using different kinds of scales that are just, it's not the typical European standard, right? Mm. But most importantly, that devotion to performance, to jamming, talking about people who they didn't have time to rehearse. They're doing all kinds of jobs in the week, but they would go in and the licks, they, they would hit down or my mum in the choir. She's, you know, the voice is ready, all of this kind of stuff. So, yeah, you know, my, my approach, yeah, it emerges from, from that electronic sound, you know, my, my brother bringing me into the boom bap era of hip-hop, you know, Nas, the Wu-Tang Clan, Mob Deep, all of these types of sounds and productions. So, you know, to this day, I create my own audios. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. We spoke a little bit about it earlier, but uh, the, the, the practice of karate. So I've been a practitioner of the Goju Ryu style, the hard soft style with Sewakai uh, Kaizen Ryu, East London, for nearly six years now. My son has been practicing for 10 years. My daughter has been practicing for close to four years. You know, when I talk to people about it, they sometimes, you know, people who are not really into, you know, martial arts are just like, oh, like you just fight. No, it's like, no, it's so much more than that. It's... You know, it's, it's, it's a centering of yourself, but it's also an emptying of yourself. You know, when I go to the dojo, I'm not there as, you know, Larry who makes films or whatever, you know. I'm there as that student who, who whose glass is empty and they're, they're hoping it can be filled. They come with a, a devotion, but there's, a, there's an honour that we're pledging. It's not just to building the craft and the style of the approach to fighting. It's, it's looking after... The other students who are your, you know, sister and brethren, you know, that they're your family, and so I apply that with within my day to day. It probably, <laughs> it probably sounds funny when, like, when I talk about it or even thinking about it. I'll give it a shot, but you know, I'm sure you know we're aware of the film Karate Kid, right? right? With Ralph uh, Macchio, and you know, you have Mr. Miyagi kind of like teaching the wax on a wax off. That stuff's true. Like, I mean, you know, like I, I say it honestly, even as a driver, you know, sometimes I do like a one hand turn, you know, you're thinking about the Kaka UK kind of like, you know, block and, and, and strike. It's it's there. It's, you know, it really becomes part of your, you know, your day to day. But but really, honestly, in seriousness, that's been important for me, amongst other things outside of being an artist. I love what I do. Don't get me wrong. I really love what I do. And Damn, I've worked hard over the decades to get to where I am. I've worked so damn hard and we're working hard still. But I think in recent years, more and more, I've asked myself, you know, what or who am I beyond making these things? Because we spend so much time, whether at the events or the talks and things like that. And I'd been searching for a while for something that I could devote myself to. And that really is it, you know. So it's not just in the day-to-day cleaning something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got that move down. I can... I can do Gikkasai Deichi or Attack and Smash version one. I'm also in a position of responsibility to young people. Most of the uh, the students there are young people. And I'm also on their board, so I, I help to try and, you know, assist with the development of, of the charity and the, the charitable work that they do. You know, the work that they do is across, you know, East London going into Essex as well. So, you know, they're working with a lot of kids that are impoverished or coming from backgrounds where they don't have many opportunities. So for me, on a range of levels, this is a very solid part of my life day to day. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? It would be the Garden of Eden work by Fazal Abdullah that he made for a solo commission at the Chisholm Gallery. I think it's 2003, 2004. Chisholm Gallery, of course, is down the road from, from where I grew up. It's in, in, uh, just behind Roman Road. I was told by my tutor at the time, you know, 
that's a really like incredible space. They do really interesting shows and commissions and things, and everything's always different whenever a different artist is, is, is brought in. From some of the stuff I'd already experienced going to the likes of Tate and what have you, and I'll be honest, I wasn't that taken away. I wasn't ready for what Faisal had created. I hope I can do a service to the, the experience of the work. It's basically this weird kind of coppery coloured perspex cube set within the gallery which is you know all concrete from the floors to the to the walls up to the ceiling that had small amounts of lighting once you go into this kind of cube it's almost like a some weird kind of you know marvel tesseract object it, it mirrors itself and reflects into you know its own kind of you know madness and, and darkness as well but etched within some of the panelling was some text that I believe is poured from the very first Matrix film. It talks about, you know, the, the, the rabbit hole and how deep it goes and such. You know, to be a fan of this incredible work produced by the Wachowskis that questions so many aspects of identity and then life, the reality and the fakery of it all. And for an artist to kind of like talk about that whilst creating a work that also in itself talks about, you know, segregation and what have you. Because I think actually, and I hope I remember this correctly, but depending on your eye colour, you were instructed to go inside of this cube or be on the outside of this cube. Now, I don't believe that the work has been represented or created since. And I, I'm just like, I've, I've never seen anything like this. What the hell? Like, why? Why? So Faisal, I'm asking you, please, Why? And I say that with reverence, uncle, but like that, that work just, it didn't take me to another planet. It took me to a whole different parallel. And then you come outside and you're back in London. You're like, did I just experience that? You know? And lastly, what's art for? If not living, then I don't want anything to do with it. Art's for living. That's what it's for. And that can be taken to any kind of like nuance. But again, I hope with some of the amazing practitioners that, that, that I look up to or have been inspired by whom I've mentioned, it's for living and it's for working for the living. That doesn't mean we take away from our respect or reverence for the dead or the past, but it's, you know, we do it for the people. That's what we do it for. Or at least that's what I do it for. Larry, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Larry Achampong, Wayfinder, is at Baltic in Gateshead in the UK until the 29th of October. Larry Achampong and David Blandy, Genetic Automata, is at Welcome Collection in London until the 11th of February 2024. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues. That's back in September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Larry Achampong. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.